This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back, Midnight Myth listeners, and we are excited to come to you another week of your favorite history, mythology, pop culture podcast. Welcome back. So I want to tell everyone a just a fun little story in something that we do here in Philadelphia for Easter. What we do is we have a thing called the zombie bar crawl. It's a very simple idea. It's Easter Sunday. You go to a bar. You pay a makeup artist to make you look like a zombie, and you and hundreds of your fellow heathen Philadelphians go from bar to bar drinking in a massive zombie bar crawl. And this is done, of course, to parody, comment, critique, and ultimately have fun on the idea that Jesus was the world's first zombie since he died and came back from the dead. Yeah, it's a great way to celebrate Zombie Jesus Day by making yourself look as ghoulish as possible and imbibing as many beverages as you can, whether or not they represent the body or blood of Christ. Absolutely. And, well, it really did get me thinking, because I've done this a few times, and it's a fun tradition. And But it really, I did kind of pause and reflect and started looking back and asking myself some fairly big questions. Um, why zombies? What is this phenomenon in pop culture that we have and why is it, like, what what made the zombie genre what it is today, which is a, it has one of the most successful, critically acclaimed TV shows in The Walking Dead. There have been several zombie movies and more to come, uh, such as World War Z, the first, like, really big budget Hollywood zombie movie. Other great zombie movies of recent history, the 28 Days and 28 Week Later series, you have... Um, video games such as uh, Resident Evil. I mean, it's huge. And you have the amazing comedy twists on the genre of Zombieland and Shaun of the Dead and others. Uh, it's, you know, there are dozens of zombie movies that come out every year. 
And it is, it has become a genre in itself apart from horror because I, in some of the early iterations of these movies that feature this threat, it laid out some very specific rules. And we won't spend too much time on the rules of the zombie genre uh, as we talk about it tonight, because I think we're more interested in the philosophies and the uh, the themes that really drive it as the genre evolves. So we're going to dig into where this phenomenon came from and why it still sticks with us today and what about it is so pure to those roots and what about it is so far from the roots that it came from. Yeah, so this is all things and everything zombie. But before we dive into the zombie podcast. Uh, people want to talk to us, get to know us a little better, reach us. How can they do that, Laurel? We would love to hear from you. We are uh, fairly present on social media. So if you would love to talk to us, hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth or on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast or on Facebook. You can also visit our website, www.midnightmyth.com and leave us a note there and check out some of our other content. And if you're listening and you enjoy what you hear, make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe if you haven't yet, and leave us a rating or a review. It really helps us get out there and reach new audiences, which we're always trying to do. Make the Midnight Myth crowd larger. So for me, I wanted to get back to really where the zombie genre came from. Like, where did this idea of animated corpses originate? Pretty much everyone agrees that it came from the island nation of Haiti. So I think the the way I'd like to kick off this conversation is to understand the island of Haiti a little better and the lore that became this huge pop culture, you know, mammoth of a subject that we have right now. If that's okay with you. That's great. Yeah. So I didn't know anything about Haitian history and its relation to zombies or to any religious or magical or, you know, spiritual beliefs. So Everything that I am going to discuss is all really fresh and new information for me. And I just want to put out there just a slight trigger warning. I'm not a Haitian expert, as well as some of these topics are going to be really unsavory and really terrible. This is also a topic and a history that is deeply steeped in myth, both you know of the folklore variety and the like common people distorting reality in order to fit their own perceptions of a culture. So it's a very difficult thing to study sometimes when you've got a history that is so, so heavily uh, clouded by myth and folklore. So it's really interesting to brush away some of those cobwebs and try to understand what's really going on. So thanks for coming with us on this journey. Yes. So uh, I think we all Americans know the date 1492. Uh, yeah, Columbus, uh, Columbus lands on an Island and calls it Hispania. That Island is now the modern Island of the Dominican Republic in Haiti. And he claims this Island in for the Spanish empire and finds it populated with a native population that he calls Indians because he believed that he might have hit India. Um, and the Spanish empire essentially works that population to death, uh, through forced labor, also through uh, diseases that they brought over from Europe that the native population was not inoculated against. So in the year 1697, the Spanish Empire wasn't as badass as it was, and it eventually gave what we now call Haiti part of Hispania to the French. And the French really saw huge potential. They realized that this could be an agricultural center 
that could supply two things, coffee and sugar, to most of the world. It had a major problem, though. No labor. Right. Who was going to work these plantations? And their solution was the transatlantic slave trade. So the French started importing in mass large populations of slaves. From West Africa. From West Africa. To put it in context, no one knows the exact number because people really weren't counting slaves. Um, But there are archives that exist as well as there are records that exist, but they're all financial records because slaves are a market. They're not humans. It's like trying to figure out how many cows in America are. You can go to the businesses that buy and trade and sell cows. Um, So the estimated number of slaves that under the French control of Haiti was 800,000 imported. God, that's a lot of people. Which is one-third of the entire uh, transatlantic African slave market. So a third of all of the African slaves... We're all on this tiny island. ...went to Haiti. Yeah. And they turned it into a huge agricultural center. Their vision ultimately proved very fruitful for Spain. I'm sorry, for France, not for Spain. They gave it to the French. Um, So the conditions in Haiti on the plantations were so terrible that the slave population turned over every 20 years, which means the average lifespan of your slave was 20 years until you had to get another one. Well, when the French imported this many um, African slaves, they brought with it their culture, their spiritual ideas, and um, one of those was what we now call voodoo. Right. So voodoo is very much a religion, Um though it is a pagan religion, as we would describe it. And what happened, the French were Catholic, and so voodoo and Catholic kind of merged into this new sort of Creole slave religion. One of the uh, traditions of voodoo dating back thousands of years was that a body, its soul, could leave the body, and a practitioner of voodoo, a voodoo sorcerer, if you will, they're called uh, bokors. Hopefully I'm not mispronouncing that. Right. Could, but they're essentially those dark priests or those uh, those black magic partic- practitioners who are not part of the like mainstream practice of voodoo. They're generally, um, in, in, in voodoo practice, not recognized by the actual priests. Well, they could reanimate a corpse. So the the belief would be that one of these dark magic practicers could reanimate a body once the soul leaves. And there was even a belief that maybe they could take out the soul and then reanimate it. And this is where the idea of the zombie comes from. It becomes a huge part of Haitian mythology because the Haitians were working through the anxiety of a slave labor existence. They were the living zombies and they feared that they would also be a a slave in death. So they would do certain things to make sure that this couldn't happen. They would decapitate their corpses. They would sometimes uh, um, stay around a burial for about 24 to 48 hours just to make sure that, that no one there could raise it and that they could be a slave in both life and in death. Right. Yeah. So this is, this is an ultimate boogeyman, right? Someone who can take, uh, take your last chance at freedom, which is death, and turn it into eternal slavery. 
and take your and harness your soul for this purpose of uh, bondage. That's terrifying. And that's the worst thing that you can imagine if you have lived your entire life a slave is to never escape it even when you die. And here's what's even like doubly fucked up. This actually has happened. And I know that might sound weird. Like, what do you mean, Derek? Do you telling me that you believe in voodoo? Well, there is a particular powder that a bukor would use, a voodoo sorcerer would use, that would include a toxic um, derived from a puffer fish called, and I'm hopefully not mispronouncing this, tetrodoxin. Right. And what tetrodoxin does in large quantities is kill you. But in smaller quantities, it paralyzes you and it makes you look to others that you are dead. The person that this person was victimizing, they'd give them this powder. They would appear to be dead. The body would get buried. The voodoo practitioner and sorcerer would then dig the body up. And as the the toxin was working out of their system and they were getting less paralyzed, they started feeding another powder which had hallucinogenic properties which put the victim in a highly suggestible state mimicking a corpse without a soul. And then they would manipulate people to do labor for them. So the actual act of creating a zombie is a very real thing, although a terrible, horrible crime. And not something that, you know, normal nice people do. And not something that is normally a practice of this religion, too. Um, so I want to make very clear that this is, a, this is a practice, if put into reality, that is done by those on the outskirts of a religion that is actually just about, you know, worshiping a supreme being through spirits that have some some control over your life. It's exactly like any other religion that's practiced in the world, but it's one that has been historically uh, demonized and connected to Satanism and sacrifice and, and things that are not actually at all part of the religion because it posed a threat to French Catholicism. It posed a threat to Western Christianity. So this is not something that we're saying voodoo practitioners do is to turn people into zombies, but it's a piece of folklore that's been absorbed and associated with that religion so much over the years. Absolutely. Totally agree there. So a little more about Haiti's um, history. So in 1791, a voodoo practitioner, uh, not one of the like evil sorcerers uh, and a slave, they perform a ritual in which they say the voodoo spirits are telling these slaves, that it is now time for them to be free. They need to kick out the French. At this time, the slaves outnumbered the non-slaves four to one. So there are four slaves to every free person. And a revolution happens, and in 1804, Haiti gets its independence, which is also a long, sordid, and bloody history from 1804 to today. But one thing that is of pertinence to the topic at hand in uh, the mid-20th century, um, a man named Duvalier becomes the president and de facto king, emperor, dictator for life of Haiti. And one thing that he realizes is that there is an underground network of voodoo, that the voodoo uh, cult, the voodoo religion are all networked and talking and engaged in the political process. Up until this point, that was always seen as a threat to the person in power. Well, this guy, Duvalier, was pretty smart and said, you know what? I'm going to ally myself with them. And in that, he formed a militia. 
Now, I'm probably going to mispronounce this too, called the Tantan Machotier. And what they did is they became the secret police, the arm, the military arm terrorizing the civilians. And one of the things that they utilized to keep people in control was they weaponized the zombie mythology. They said, if you rebel against us, not only will we kill you, but we will raise you as a zombie and hold you as a slave for all of eternity. Yeah, once again, capitalizing on that ultimate fear after a life of bondage, it will never be over for you. It's terrifying. It really is. And I think the one lesson from the history of the zombie mythology that I think I gleam, that I take away, is that when we go out and celebrate the the great zombie movies of this current era, to which there are many, we need to, I think, be a little respectful and understand that a bunch of slaves trying to make sense of their miserable existence in the world is the origin of this great and powerful mythology that we have now. And I think there's value in respecting that origin because it forces us to confront our own colonial history. Myself, as a modern, white, cisgendered male, it humbles me to realize that the freedoms and liberties that I have enjoyed have come out of the, the, the backs of just forced slavery. Absolutely. And if we track to this mythology through, uh, through its inception in uh, Haitian uprising and revolution, and where we're first, uh, when I say we, I mean uh, white Westerners, first getting our hands on this story and putting it on parade in movies like White Zombie with Bela Lugosi in 1932, uh, we're saying, look at this cabinet of curiosities. Look at this extremely weird thing from this religion that we can turn into the ultimate monster. It then takes on a life of its own. And that's how we get where we are now. We recognize something universal in this monster that ends up going in so many new directions. So what I mean by this is when you think of zombie, whether you're thinking of a, of a Haitian zombie, a voodoo-related zombie, or if you're thinking of the zombies from Night of the Living Dead or Zombieland, what are the first things that come to your mind? Uh, it's hordes of people, right, swarming toward you. It's uh, a lack of individuality, and it's a moaning and groaning and really stilted movement and there is this sense of, uh, of impending dread and soullessness and mindlessness that is just surrounding you, right? So the threat coming at you is many-fold. If you are one of the last survivors of the humans retaining their humanity, what's coming at you is an existential threat on more la layers than one. So for one, obviously, I want to survive. I don't want to die. I don't want something to violently kill me and eat my flesh or whatever it's about to do. But more than that, it evokes this interesting sense of pity and uh, disgust when I see a zombie lurching toward me. Like that thing used to be me. It used to have the instincts and the, uh, the higher ideals and the desires and the comforts of someone like me and it looks a little bit like me, but it's actually 
just returned to its basest absolute instincts where all it can do is lurch forward for flesh and brains. And that is a total threat to who I am where I have created this self. I have created something out of my identity and my individuality. And part of that is a very American thing that I have created this sense that I'm special. And the zombie is not only about to come eat me, it's telling me I'm not special. So there's something very, very scary about the loss of humanity lurching toward you that is universal. And that's why we can take this, uh, this thing and evolve it into so many new fears and so many new uh, avenues of that genre. Sure. I, so uh, yeah, you, you touched on a lot of things. So I want to back up and unpack a little bit of what you said, because I thought it was dense. Um, and the one thing I want to iterate, so the first zombie film you mentioned was called White Zombie. It came out in the 30s. It starred Bela Lugosi. It takes place in Haiti. So the zombies in the movie White Zombie are very much of and respectful to and derived from the Haitian zombie. Yeah. It isn't until Night of the Living Dead, which was 1968, I want to say. Yeah. 1968, where we see these zombies become this carnivorous horde, unexplained phenomenon that occurs where the dead come out of their graves and try to eat the living. And that transition from the the Haitian being controlled by a sorcerer to this unexplained mystical phenomenon, then the zombie movie, I think, transitions out of a story about slavery and into a story about the end of the world. Exactly. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here is that we take a story that comes from, uh, that comes from our colonial history and we reach for what we can find as something we can relate to and we transform that monster into our monster. And the evolution of the zombie genre is interesting because so often, even from its inception, but so often in the evolution of the zombie genre, it is more than anything allegory, right? So the the most famous and the most well-received and the most popular uh, zombie movies that you can think of are often careful social critiques or they are allegories for some threat to American or Western life. So you mentioned Night of the Living Dead, which is a seminal work by George Romero uh, that came out in 1968, came out just months after Martin Luther King was assassinated uh, and we're steeped in the civil rights movement. We're in Vietnam. This is a turbulent and scary time for our country. And the, the main character, the last man standing, is a black man who's been able to fend off these creatures when all the white people around him can't. And in the very final moment of, of the movie, what happens? He's shot down by a white police officer. So it becomes this careful social critique that does deal with race, but zombie movies after this rarely touch it because it takes on new fears. And when I say movies after it rarely touch it, movies before it rarely touch it too. Uh, even though we have White Zombie as the, as the impetus, even though we have that movie that takes place in Haiti, uh, it, it's primarily populated by white actors and it's about white people uh, who are faced by this threat. And the movies that come after in the 1940s are racked by where America is as a country then. 
They are racked by the fear of nuclear extinction and they're racked by the fear of the spread of communism. So we have comic books and these B horror movies that come out where the zombies are clearly an allegory for uh, red spread or espionage or people who are animated after a nuclear apocalypse. So it's always taking on exactly the cultural moment that we are in and absorbing those fears and putting them into this vessel that represents that thing that is most scary to us right now. Uh, you know, you can read things out there about the zombie genre that will say that the Haitian zombie and the voodoo zombie is a completely different entity to the Hollywood zombie of today. And in many ways, yes, they are very different animals and there is so much, uh, there's so much difference between the two. But to ignore the fact that one came out of the other, I think, is, is to ignore an entire tradition that leads to how we characterize our fears in our monsters. We can follow that evolution through to today. We can follow our fears of, uh, of contagion and pandemics into Resident Evil and the like 28 Days Later zombies who are all from this, uh, this virus that got out and turned people into mindless, soulless drones. Or we can follow it into Dawn of the Dead or even Shaun of the Dead that says, uh, you know, contemporary capitalist societies create mindless, soulless drones. It's something that always can take on a new form based on where we are right now. It's one of the beautiful and often most challenging things about a fantastic story that becomes a symbol and that that symbol then gets absorbed and digested and then monetized and um, understanding the, the length of tradition that that symbol comes from and the question of whether or not that's even appropriate to say, okay, we're going to take the the zombie, the idea of a you know animated humanless body. We're going to take that from its its roots in slave voodoo mythology and turn it into a critique of you know Western civilization writ large. And I think you're right. You have to draw the line and respectfully because you have to realize that none of these narratives are happening in a vacuum. Of course, yeah. And, you know, it makes me question in an age where we're, we're wondering who gets to tell whose story. It makes me question whether, you know, we even have the right to use this symbol as the, as the symbol of our fears when we might be ignoring or severing the ties to uh, an age-old fear uh, that's born out of this mythology. That's, I don't want to be enslaved for eternity. I don't want my humanity taken away because of this history of the slave trade. By severing those ties, are we willfully ignoring that history of ours and taking this symbol as our own? Ooh, big question. It's a big question. Big, big question, and an important one. And I don't know if I have the absolute answer. Of course. But I'm going to try, because this is the Midnight Myth, and you're listening to my show, and I'm going to try to answer. And that's what we do here. I'm going to say yes and no. I'm going to say that it exists in the murky, paradoxical phrase where it is both immoral and moral, correct and incorrect simultaneously. So to take something that matters to something else and claim it as your own is always just inherently morally unseemly. Yeah. It's, it's not exploiting, cool. right? It's exploitive. It's not giving credit to where it is due. 
and it often is superficial. You're doing it for the wrong reasons, whether it's style, substance, or profit. Right. So I think there's a huge uh, room for a conversation about cultural appropriation, and the zombie mythology can be part of that. So on one hand, yes, it's wrong that Western civilization has appropriated the zombie and turned it into its own ex- like story experiment to understand the anxieties that Western society has while ignoring its slave roots. On the other hand, all symbols are arbitrary. They're only given power because we choose to give them power. And all symbols change over time. What a piece of artwork means at one point may not mean the same at another point. Right, absolutely. We experience this in our own lives, where I might see a painting when I'm 13, and it might mean something completely different than when I'm 36. And we see that the the power that we put in these symbols change. And we see that on large scales, too. I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before, but I have worked many times in a theater here in Philadelphia that's a really old, it's like a 110-year-old building, and it's a historic place. And in their lobby, they have these tiles with uh, swastikas on them. And knowing that the that the building is over a hundred years old and it's a pre-war building, and you look at those swastikas and there's a little plaque that reminds you that it's an Eastern symbol and that it's the symbol of peace um, from Buddhism and Hinduism. But it's the initial reaction when you see a symbol that like, has been co-opted to hate is, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, you're you're confronted by that. You're affronted by that. It's an attack on you. And while Nobody wants to censor and nobody wants to say, oh, that symbol cannot be seen anymore because it's actually a symbol of peace. We have to confront the fact that it means something different now. It means hate now. And we cannot, uh, we cannot necessarily be throwing ourselves on the altar of protecting the Eastern swastika. We have to let the change happen. And the fact that the zombie movie springboarding off of that point now represents the fears, anxieties of Western civilization still can teach us things. Um, you know, and I think what we look at, I think the kernel in the modern zombie movie, starting from Night of the Living Dead until Zombieland or World War Z, which I think is the most recent mainstream zombie movie. Sure, yeah. Is that it is experimenting in what I would call um in an enlightenment philosophical sense, social contract theory. Mm, this is the, exciting. The state of nature. Now, I believe we mentioned this in our post-apocalyptic episode. Yeah. But in the era now called the enlightenment, several thinkers were trying to understand what it means to have a society and where the power from society comes from. And one of their questions was, why do we even do it? Why do we live as a group? And they had this intellectual exercise called the state of nature. What would human beings be like if there were no society pre society humans, you know, and their theory based upon that governed why they thought societies were structured in the way they were. For example, a man by the name of Hobbes, he wrote a very famous work of philosophy called the Leviathan. Uh, Hobbes lived from 1588 to 1679 he was one of the original original social contract theorists. And to Hobbes, the state of nature, man without a government, without a collective work of laws, 
is in a constant state of anarchy. It's a state in which only the strong survive. People are brutish. People are violent. And it is a very bleak view on human nature that without rules telling us what to do, we all become savages. He has a very famous quote that life in the state of nature would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And the zombie movies explore human nature by separating us from our comfort, separating us from our laws, putting us in a place where day-to-day survival is the biggest need and you just need to survive. And they also separate us from humanity by turning most of what we would think as a human into a soulless, brainless, monstrous creature. And the people that take on the zombie genre are working out what they think this world would actually look like. And in each one, we can gleam a little of the state of nature. Now, most are very Hobbesian. Most assume the worst. But then you do see things such as Zombieland, in which a family is formed. A group is formed. They establish norms, rules. You know, it starts with a character writing down rules. One of the first acts of civilization. He does this, yes, to survive, but he ultimately overrides his survival instinct. The don't be a hero gets scratched off of Jesse Eisenberg's character's list to be a hero. It's okay to sacrifice yourself for those you love. And in that in that way, Zombieland ends more civilized than when it began. And that's how you win, right? You you don't win by killing the most zombies and surviving. Uh, the 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 biggest fear about zombies is the loss of your humanity, and you can only hold on to your humanity if you rise above being just one of the animals. If you are an animal, all you care about is survival. But by you know, giving actual love and sacrifice and transformative care to another human being, you beat the zombies, even if you end up dying. Exactly. That's how you win. And so in this way, the zombie mythology and its ability to, to from its, its origins, to, to also mean different things and more things is a fundamental good thing on the one hand, so yes, it is a form of appropriation that's bad, that's wrong, that's disrespectful. But on the other hand, we can still learn from it. So to answer your question, I would say as long as there is legitimate value, you know, as long as there is something to be learned when a symbol transforms, when it gets taken by someone else and used in a way that it wasn't intended, the real question is what, what are they actually doing with the thing? you know, is is more important than the fact that they took it. Right. Is it transformed into a symbol of hate and uh, and meanness and evil, or is it transformed into a symbol of hope and inspiration? Does it go from meaning peace to meaning racism as the swastika? Um, and I think as long as we are aware that, hey, there is a long line, thousands of years old for the zombie tradition that goes back to West Africa and that we should celebrate that, Right? And we should confront our own colonial history and our own prejudices and biases and do our best to overcome them while celebrating the zombie genre where it is today, I think is the, the nuance where that lives. It's recognizing storytelling roots and something we talk about on the podcast a lot, recognizing our own history through that act. 
I think that one of the reasons we love stories and we love to explore them is because they teach us so much about ourselves and they can help us dig deeper into the context of our own history. And so by researching zombies and where they came from and how you can get from these slave zombies of, of Haitian uh, folklore and West uh, African folklore into where we are today with the flesh-eating zombies who are crawling over walls, we learn how our fears evolve and we learn how to relate to each other through universal emotions like love, fear, uh, you know, and hope. Oh, totally love that. That's, that's so cool. Right. So, so I do think that it's important to continue to draw those lines and never sever those ties of like, Hey, this looks so different from this. And even though they share the same name, they're so different. We can't call them the same thing. It's important to remember one thing came from another thing. You have to know the history to know today. I I totally agree with that. I I, I could not agree with you more in that respect. And uh, just to echo, I 100% need to respect where things came from, especially if we want to understand them better. And trying to understand the zombie as a genre is important. You know, and I think it's important because... There's so much awesome history underneath these cool movies, you know, and learning about Haitian history in preparation for this podcast was blowing my mind, you know, and very rarely, you know, do you get to get, you know, awakened to something that you didn't even really know was a thing unless you start scratching the surface and saying, why are zombies popular? What makes the zombie genre work? What makes it tick? And as you start peeling back those layers to get to the core, you get to a Haitian, you know, you know, West African mythology that is so enriching and so cool. I would love to rewind just a little bit to this social contract theory that you introdu- introduced with, uh, you know, our conflicting ideas about how human beings would be without rules and without established society. I'm interested in this idea that you can have a zombie movie that is optimistic about our fate that sees the end of the world happen and sees the triumph of the human spirit over that end, which I think is, is the perfect way to transcend the zombie, which shows us that there is no eternity. There is no soul. There is no eternal life for you. So I'm very interested in, in how we get that from social contract theory. Yeah. So I'd like to bring up, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I'd like to bring up another one of my favorite zombie movies. And it's also one of the sillier ones in Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead. That's my favorite. Yeah. And I think we can see a few different characters articulating philosophies about human nature. For starters, Shaun. Now, Shaun is definitely a fuck up and uh, he's definitely kind of adrift in life and not taking things seriously. However, Shaun fundamentally views humans as good. Right, And that's his characteristic that gets him to the end of this. Yeah, he He, sees the good in Ed, he sees the good in Pete. He sees the good in his stepfather, who he hates. Almost, yeah. He hates, he despises, but he still can't bring himself to kill him knowing that he'll turn into a zombie. Right. You know, so he still takes him with him, even though, like, he really, really despises him and wants to, and knows the right thing to do is to, to kill him. I think it's most clearly articulated when they're actually in the Winchester in the pub. And it turns out that Sean's mom has been bitten and she's dying and she's going to be a zombie. 
And Sean does not want to let the other guy in the group, David, shoot his mom. You know, and a huge blow up. And David is essentially articulating a more Hobbesian view. He's saying, we know that she's going to, she's just going to come back from the dead and try to kill us. So I'm going to shoot her. He's also doing a alpha male power play. I'm trying to one up Sean. And I, and the entire time he feels undercut by Sean, because a Sean has the woman that he wants and B Sean is the leader. So he wants to alpha male his way out of this scenario. And it's telling that he picks up the gun and he points it and he's ready to kill Sean just to shoot the mother to prove his point. Where Sean represents what I'd call a Lockean view. So John Locke is a contemporary. He was uh, after Hobbes. And he had a very different view of the state of nature. He believed that there were intrinsic rights given to humanity through God. Those rights are liberty, uh, property, speech. It's the basis of the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. All of those documents came from a Lockean view that humans are fundamentally good. Even when they're not really good at doing anything, you know, even if they don't are, have low skills, low ambition, and uh, like going to drink in the same pub every night of their life, there's still a fundamental goodness to them. And that's what Sean believes. And Sean's just like, that's my mom. You can't shoot her. There's something special about this individual. And until she actually is a threat, until we have to shoot her, we can't shoot her because I love her. And those qualities in Shaun of the Dead are in that in the character Shaun or what help him and eventually him and Liz make it out of there. Absolutely. And all the characters are proved right in this, right? So David has a fundamentally bleak view of human beings and humanity, and they are realized for him, for his destiny. Sean has a fundamental belief in everyone's ability to create their destiny and everyone's ability to make choices for the better. And he's proved right for himself. And how do we know that Sean, like last piece of evidence, he keeps his best friend as a zombie. Even though his friend is a soulless monster, he still you know, keeps him and plays video games with him because he still sees the humanity despite the fact that he's literally lost all of his humanity. It's the transcendence again. It's the, it's the real win against the zombie. It's not eradicating all of them. It's continuing to recognize the humanity within yourself and rise above your baser instincts and even recognize the humanity in your opponent. Like that's, that's amazing. That's transcendent. But not every zombie movie ends like that. 28 days later ends with the main character giving in to violence and realizing that I can get away with murder in this world and I'm going to kill these other humans who offered me shelter because they're bad, because I view them as my enemy, because they want to rape the woman I love, because uh, they, they are savage. And he just turns savage and embraces you know, the inner, more basic, animalistic, more Hobbesian view. Rage, yeah. So not every zombie movie has a positive outlook on human nature. Some most more often than not, it's pretty brutal. Exactly. Which like is all why, walking dead. Yeah. Very brutal. Which is why these stories like Zombieland and Shaun of the Dead, maybe it's because they are constructed as comedies and to lampoon the genre, I think land in a, a much more interesting and braver place than the ones that end so bleakly. 
I think it's it's a, a real stand to say, hey, we actually can retain our humanity in the face of its absolute opposite. Well, I think the real question that I give to you listeners is, who would you be in the zombie apocalypse? How would you behave? Would you kill your neighbor if that meant you could take their food? Or would you try to form a group with them and work together so that you can both survive? And I think that is the ultimate question of the, the, the genre is in the face of all collapse of societal institutions, who are we really when we can get away with doing whatever we want? Are we powerful brutes? Are we compassionate and caring? Are we somewhere in between? And I think that is the the part of the, the, the genre where it is right now that is so intriguing. Yeah. is It's asking these questions through these characters and through these scenarios and giving us some bizarre and interesting and cool answers. Yeah. I think that's amazing. And I, lo- I love everything you just said. And I, I think the question for me uh, on top of that is, is my goal to survive or is my goal to stay human? And that's a much more difficult thing to do than survive, I think. Yeah, especially when you're literally surrounded with animated corpses trying to eat you. Absolutely. You know, and, you know, and I, I could say, you know, one could say it's so much easier to just become a brute and just survive, you know, but that temptation in those characters to do that and to be that, like we understand it. Like we understand that sometimes they're just, if there's a threat, they're going to have to just kill the enemy. Yeah. You know, so I don't know where I land on, on it, but I tell you, I like the experiment. Me too. So got anything else here? I don't have too much else. Uh, you said, what's your favorite zombie movie? My favorite zombie movie was always 28 Days Later. It's good. But... Shaun of the Dead might be my favorite. Shaun of the Dead's my absolute favorite. Yeah, 28 Days Later or Shaun of the Dead, depending on depending on my view of humanity. If I want something On any more, particular day. Yeah, if I want something more pessimistic, it's probably going to be 28 Days Later. If I want something more hopeful and fun, um, it's Shaun of the Dead. The comedy zombie movies are easier to rewatch. Oh, of course they Because they're fun. Yeah. The really bleak ones, like, they do take an emotional toll on you. Yeah even though I love them. Yeah. I want to know what everybody else's favorite zombie movie is. If you, uh, like I said at the beginning, tweet us at the midnight myth on Twitter. I'll post something today. Uh, share your favorite zombie movies with us and we would love to hear from you. Yeah. And, uh, until next time, pray and be kind, be kind. <laughs>